part two of chapter twelve of my days and dreams by edward carpenter this librivox recording is in the public domain the naivete of the social reformer explains too the common fact that the anarchist who is in theory thirsting for the blood of kings and occasionally perhaps capable of perpetrating a deed of violence himself is generally like kropotkin the gentlest and mildest of men who would not hurt a fly it is only such men having the love of humanity in their hearts who are able to believe in the speedy realization of an era of universal goodwill and again it is only such men being innocent enough to believe that the only impediment to the realization of this era is a certain wicked person in authority who can spur themselves on to the bloody dispatch of such a person if the career of kropotkin has been romantically varied in one way that of mrs besant has been equally so in another to begin as a curate's wife with a vivid strain of religious devotion to break away into broad churchism and then into boundless disbelief to become an ardent secularist companion of bradlaugh and propagandist of anti-population doctrines to suffer persecution and to be sentenced to months of imprisonment to espouse the cause of socialism and do battle in the ranks of labor to float into the haven of theosophy and be made the mouthpiece of invisible mahatmas and of the by no means invisible madame blavatsky and finally to complete this quaint circle by becoming the high priestess of a religious movement and the guardian of the herald of the coming christ such a career ought to satisfy the most picturesque ambition yet it would be unfair to doubt annie besant's sincerity having known her so long as i have i feel sure that she has been urged onward from point to point by a perfectly genuine mental evolution largely directed no doubt at each turn of the road by some dominant mind whom she has met and largely colored by that naivete of which we have already spoken a naivete indeed which has made it possible for her to take herself very seriously and to fulfill her adopted role always with a strong sense of duty and a comparatively weak perception of the humor of the situation from the hour when alone in the pulpit of her husband's church annie besant discovered her own great oratorical gift her future career one may say was decided with an excellent capacity for logical and clear statement she became the exponent in succession of large and important blocks of modern thought she helped to batter down the ruins and remains of the stupefied old anglican church she gave the general mind a wholesome shock on the malthusian question she dotted out clearly the main lines of the socialist movement she formed a new channel for religious thought by making the words karma and reincarnation familiar and she sought to bring the western public into touch with the great age-long ideas and inspirations of the old indian sages 
in all these ways she has done splendid work and helped vastly in the construction of that great twentieth century bridge which will in its due time lead us into another world only in the last item her touch upon the ideas and inspirations of the ancient east does she seem to me curiously enough to have failed with all her enthusiasm for the subject mrs besant does not appear to have the intuitive perception the mystic quality of mind which should enable her to reach the very heart of the old vedantic teaching her intellect clear and systematic in its structure has little of the poetic or original or inspirational in its composition and it may be doubted whether it has ever quite fathomed the religious writings with which it has been so much occupied anyhow mrs besant's own writings on these subjects are unlike her general lectures dull to a degree she analyzes the composition of the human personality or the order of general creation or the various life rounds of our mortal race but in all she seems to be repeating or corroborating some pre-established formula never to be describing something which she has herself perceived system and formula prevail unseen quotes, authorities are hinted at the pages bristle with sanskrit jargon but no living or creative idea moves among them and the reader rises from their perusal void of inspiration or of any really vital impulse towards new fields of thought and life nevertheless taking it all nevertheless taking it all in all and especially in her expositions of socialism and theosophy mrs besant has done as i have said a great work and one cannot sufficiently admire the courage with which she has carried it through as well as her kindliness and helpfulness towards others and in later years her own inner mental calm contrasting with the somewhat restless bitterness of an earlier time in eighteen eighty four or so the founding of the new fellowship in london from which afterwards the fabian society sprang brought me into touch with havelock ellis and olive schreiner as i think i have already said ellis discovered in the proverbial penny box of a second-hand publisher and soon after its publication the little first edition of my towards democracy and rescuing it wrote to me thus began my friendship with him and afterwards with the authoress of the story of an african farm a prophet is seldom acclaimed in his own country and the work which ellis has done in that most important field of sexual psychology is even yet by no means recognized in england as it ought to be even though the subject is becoming extremely quotes, actual here in the present day and though elsewhere over the world his pioneer work is most honorably received and respected the six massive volumes of his studies in the psychology of sex form a masterpiece of large-minded and yet extremely detailed observation and generalization and provide a survey of the most impartial character over this vast realm 
and such as can be obtained nowhere else for though the germans have written extensively in this field their books more teutonical are generally overladen with detail huge jungles through which it is difficult to find one's way ellis combines with the englishman's perspicacity and love of order a remarkable erudition and command of particulars and at the present juncture when the world is waking up to the absolute necessity of a reasonable understanding and frank recognition of sex things the appearance of his book may almost be characterized as providential this quality may indeed be suspected in the fact that the author began making notes for his magnum opus at a very early age driven thereto by some sort of instinct nor finished his work till he was about fifty i know of few things in literature more touching than the postscript to his last volume the nunc dimittis after some thirty years of toil Quote, it was perhaps fortunate for my peace that i failed at the outset to foresee all the perils that beset my path i knew indeed that those who investigate sincerely and intimately any subject which men are accustomed to pass by on the other side lay themselves open to misunderstanding and even obloquy but i supposed that a secluded student who approached vital social problems with precaution making no direct appeal to the general public but only to the public's teachers and who wrapped up the result of his inquiries in technically written volumes open to few i supposed that such a student was at all events secure from any gross form of attack on the part of the police or the government under whose protection he imagined that he lived that proved to be a mistake when only one volume of these studies had been written and published in england a prosecution instigated by the government put an end to the sale of that volume in england and led me to resolve that the subsequent volumes should not be published in my own country i do not complain i am grateful for the early and generous sympathy with which my work was received in germany and the united states and i recognize that it has had a wider circulation both in english and the other chief languages of the world than would have been possible by the modest method of issue which the government of my own country induced me to abandon nor has the effect to crush my work resulted in any change in that work by so much as a single word with help or without it i have followed my own path to the end he who follows in the steps of nature after a law that was not made by man and is above and beyond man has time as well as eternity on his side and can afford to be both patient and fearless men die but the ideas they seek to kill live our books may be thrown to the flames but in the next generation those flames become human souls End quote. the personality of havelock ellis is that of a student thoughtful preoccupied bookish deliberate 
yet unlike most students he has a sort of grand air of nature about him a fine free head and figure as of some great god pan with distant relations among the satyrs those early meetings of the new fellowship were full of hopeful enthusiasms life simplified a humane diet and a rational dress manual labor democratic ideals communal institutions indeed one or two little practical efforts towards colony groups were at that time made herbert ricks w j jupp percival chubb edith lees afterwards mrs ellis mrs hinton widow of james hinton carolyn haddon ernest rise were among the early members edith lees was one of the most active and vigorous of this group she helped to organize and to carry on for some time a joint dwelling or cooperative boarding-house near mecklenburg square where eight or ten members of the fellowship dwelt in a kind of communistic utopia naturally the arrangement gave rise to some rather amusing and some almost tragic episodes which she has recorded for us in a little story entitled attainment after her marriage she took a farm near st ives in cornwall which became a helpful retreat for her husband as well as herself from the strenuousness of london life with her extraordinary energy and directness she plunged into and soon mastered all the details of cattle and pig breeding and farming and i shall never forget the impression she produced on one occasion when staying with me at millthorpe when we took her round to the public-house in the evening the delight and amazement of the farm men at finding someone more or less resembling a lady who really understood and would talk freely about such things and her at-homeness among the company were most refreshing they were fascinated by the directness of her intense blue eyes her sturdy figure her vigorous gestures and the evident equality of her comradeship with them and to this day they not unfrequently ask us when is that little lady coming again with that curly hair like a lad's and them blue eyes what talked about pigs and cows i shall never forget her edith ellis not only became a help to her husband in his literary work but herself spoke and wrote on subjects of eugenics and sex psychology of late years she has made a considerable study of james hinton and has done me the honor to associate my name with his and with nietzsche's in a little book entitled three modern seers one evening as we sat round a table in rix's rooms at burlington house i saw a charming girl face of riant italian type smiling across to me it was olive schreiner she had arrived from south africa only a few months before had published her african farm and though only twenty-one or twenty-two years of age was already famous as its authoress juvenile in some ways as that book was somewhat incoherent and disjointed in structure written by a mere girl of eighteen or nineteen 
and with a title which gave no idea of its real content yet its intensity was such that it seized almost at once on the public mind the african sun was in its veins fire and sweetness intense love of beauty fierce rebellion against the things that be passion and pity and the pride of lucifer combined these things too olive schreiner's face and figure revealed a wonderful beauty and vivacity a lightning-quick mind fine eyes a resolute yet mobile mouth a determined little square-set body it was right since alliances are so often knit by contrast that she and havelock ellis should have become friends and maintained a close correspondence with each other for over thirty years and it was a privilege to me to share in the friendship of them both naturally with such gifts of body and mind the arrival of the authoress of the african farm excited almost a furor of interest quite a procession of the young literary men of the day arrived in handsome cabs at the door of her bloomsbury lodgings to pay their homage to the new genius and olive herself often told me with considerable amusement of the dismay and severe disapproval of more than one of her landladies who certainly were not inclined to believe that mere literary talent could cause so much attraction anyhow at that time of day before the suffragette had arrived and when ladies took the greatest care to brindle in their chins and speak in mincing accents a young and pretty woman of apparently ladylike origin who did not wear a veil and seldom wore gloves and who talked and laughed even in the streets quite naturally and unaffectedly was an unclassifiable phenomenon and laid herself open to the gravest suspicions we may congratulate ourselves that the pioneer women of today have made a return to some of these inhumanities of the victorian era impossible during that bloomsbury period and afterwards i saw olive schreiner fairly frequently that is when she was in england or europe i saw her in paris early in eighty seven and at todmorden and whitby later in the same year also at alasio where she stayed for two or three months in eighty eight those two years eighty seven and eighty eight were a period of considerable suffering for her in eighteen ninety three she was in england again and spent three months during the summer in a little cottage in my valley after ninety three what with her marriage to s c cronwright and what with the outbreak of the boer war and all the tragedies attendant upon that she did not come to england for a long period and it was on the last day of nineteen thirteen that i saw her again after a twenty years absence her father was a german free church missionary and of the most tender self-forgetful type the original doubtless of the german overseer in the african farm olive herself has often told me how he would give away his last coin to anyone he deemed to be in need his wife would say to him 
john where is that best sunday coat of yours and he would say is it not upstairs in the chest as usual no john i have been looking for it everywhere how very strange was the reply now john i believe you have given it away no surely my dear i could not have given that away at least i think not john now tell me true did you not give it to that tramp that came yesterday well my dear now you mention it i think i may have done so it is just possible you are right but i am sure i hardly remember oh john john you are indeed incorrigible that was the picture of her father soft pitiful and dreamy the mother rebecca lindall by her maiden name was of english descent keen intellectual fine-featured and somewhat self-willed the two types were combined in their daughter and she again in writing her novel divided them up waldo represented one side of her own character lindall the other perhaps there was a tragic element in the combination of two such different hereditary strains in the one person perhaps there were other causes certain it is that beneath the mobile and almost merry-seeming exterior of olive schreiner there ran a vein of intense determination and that this again was crossed and countered by an ineradicable pessimism the story of an african farm despite its magical and beautiful pictures is painful to read and the same may be said of her other books they realize and force the reader to realize almost too keenly the pain and evil of the world too keenly i mean for truth and fact yet what is fact but what we feel and if olive schreiner feels things so so far her presentment is true i have seen her shake her little fist at the lord in heaven and curse him down from his throne with a vibrating force and intensity which surely must have been felt and surely also with healthy result in the highest circles a lady who had spent forty years of her life working in the mission schools of south africa once said to me and this was quite in her old age when she was nearing eighty ah she said the kaffirs are the finest people on earth you english think a lot about yourselves but i tell you you are not to be compared with the kaffirs olive schreiner was born in basuto land she grew up and spent her early life among the natives and in many ways her verdict was the same as that just quoted she loved the dark folk and their land and she has never ceased to love them it has been one of the tragedies of her life that she has been compelled to stand by and witness the crushing of this free and fine-souled people beneath the sordid heel of western commercialism or let us say the attempted crushing for indeed thank heaven the process is not yet complete it has been her agony to see them at every moment cajoled and betrayed of their lands 
broken with labor in the mines deceived with drink and mowed down with machine guns and all this by the very christian race that ought to have lent them a helping hand and to have been able to do so little as it would seem to her for their salvation but even though it would seem little the fact that one woman in south africa has thus prophet-like stood up and much of the time singly opposed roads and the shoddy imperialism of which he was the mouthpiece has had an influence deep and wide-reaching and such as will be felt far down the years another thing that has formed almost a tragedy in olive schreiner's life has been her dedication to the cause of women no one can read her three dreams in a desert or her woman and labor without feeling how in the consciousness of the sufferings of woman the iron has entered into her soul if she had only been content like some of the wilder spirits of the movement to unload on men the vials of her wrath and to saddle on mankind alone the responsibility for these sufferings her strain in the cause would have had more of the delight of battle in it but she was too large-minded not to see that if there is to be any blame in such a matter the blame must be accepted by woman herself just as much as by man the two sexes are joined together and if man has been unworthy has it not been because woman his mother has made him so if woman has played the parasite has that not resulted in her injuring man olive schreiner's perception of the slow inevitable strain and suffering inseparable from evolution itself in this matter of the emancipation of women has had a complexion of tragedy in it she has seen her dearest friends like constance lytton and others crippled and broken for life by their heroic struggles and undaunted resolution in the face of prison horrors and yet she has felt that the evil lay deeper than any accusation against men taken by itself could explain or any mere reform of the suffrage could mend it is curious how south africa to those who know the country well carries with it a fascination and an attraction which time and again draws them back to its soil a friend of mine who lived for some years around lake nyassa told me that after his return to england he frequently dreamt at night of all that wild region and its primitive animal life on more than one occasion he dreamed that he was wrecked at sea and swam desperately to the african coast if only he might die as it were in the arms of his beloved or he would make an imaginary pilgrimage from london to the very shores of the lake and there in a kind of ecstasy would take the water up in his palms and wash it over his face and head only to wake up and find his features wet with his own tears this was henry b cotterill a schoolfellow of mine at the brighton college 
where indeed his father was headmaster about the time eighteen seventy five or so when i was lecturing astronomy at leeds livingstone's book came out exposing the horrors of the black slave traffic around lakes tanganyika and nyassa a region at that time entirely except by livingston himself unexplored by white men the book bit deeply into cotterill's heart and soul it said that the only cure for the mohammedan or arabian trade in slaves would be the introduction of a trade by white men in the legitimate articles of commerce and from that moment cotterill could not rest goaded on by the thought that he must undertake this work at the time he was acting as an assistant master at harrow school he started lecturing there and at other places round the country on the subject he collected a fund the harrow boys and masters gave him a steel launch or cutter which could be taken up country in sections and screwed together he came to leeds and spoke there as well as at places like edinburgh manchester liverpool the fund grew and i remember going with him to some african warehouse in london city where he bought bales of cotton cloth and hundredweights of beads and quantities of scarlet shell jackets especially coveted by african chieftains as their sole garment for purposes of barter up country thus off his own bat as it were he got up this strange mission and leaving harrow and pedagogy behind embarked on a career of considerable adventure and danger the mission succeeded ordinary traders followed in his footsteps and within a few years the slave trade engineered by moors and arabs died out in the land it was followed it is true by the almost equal horrors of that commercial civilization which has since been introduced by europeans but i suppose one must be thankful in the slow and age-long evolution of human affairs for even one small step towards better things at a later time cotterill returned to england but unable like many another traveller and lover of the wild to endure the smug philistinism of british life he ultimately settled on the continent or rather led a somewhat roving life there chiefly in france germany and italy supporting himself and a small family by the not too lucrative pursuits of literature and the teaching of languages he has written and edited many books to which his encyclopedic knowledge and command of six or seven languages have contributed but undoubtedly his great and monumental work has been the translation of the odyssey of homer complete into english hexameters daring is the man who ventures on that exceedingly boggy ground of the english hexameter and many are those who have gone under and been engulfed in the attempt by lightness and speed of movement only can one keep going but in those qualities so characteristic of the greek this translation is supremely successful its verbal fidelity is amazing its presentation of the old warrior and tribal life 
made possible as he himself says by his intimate knowledge of african customs is such as no armchair scholar could attain to and the result is a gift to the whole english-speaking world a rendering of the immortal classic that one may read with unflagging joy and zest from cover to cover end of chapter twelve